Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, October 26, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writers, Y. Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. We have a lot of news to get to. It is Friday, and if we if if we held any of this off until mon- Monday, it would be kicked to Tuesday because of the water cooler. So we got to get try to get through all of this today, guys. Uh, we we have a lot of news on uh, remakes that Hollywood probably shouldn't be doing, and a bunch of things that Hollywood is canceling. So, uh, but before that. Let's get to a project that I'm actually very interested in. This is uh, DreamWorks has announced they are turning one of my favorite board games into an animated movie. HT, tell us about it. Yeah, so DreamWorks Animation is in final negotiations for the movie rights to Mice and Mystics, which is a board game by Jerry Hawthorne. Uh, It's a role-playing game that... uh, Three years ago, you, Peter, uh, drew up a wish list of sorts to say to 
say which which board game deserved a movie adaptation, and this was number one on that list. Uh, not not only followed... was it number one, but in my write up, I said DreamWorks should make an animated film based on this board game. So I'm bragging on this. You one have superpowers, of... Peter. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yes, this is um, a role-playing game in which uh, the heroes are residents of a castle who have been turned to mice, and they're fighting. They're racing through a vast castle to break the curse of the evil Venestra, and uh, fighting off several rats, cockroaches, spiders, and the castle cat along the way. Um, if talks go through for this um, film, uh, the Hills Have Eyes and Horns director Alexandra Aya is set to direct a script by the Aquaman screenwriter David Leslie Johnson with Vertigo Entertainment's Roy Lee and John Berg set to produce. Yeah, this is very much like a fantasy film starring, uh, you know, rodents. It's kind of like Mouse Guard, which is also in development with, uh, who, Westfall, I think. And um, this game is a a great family game, although, you know, I am an adult, and I played this with my friends, and it has a story, and it, it, it's a whole lot of fun. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I'm excited to see this happening. But uh, the, the director doesn't seem like a choice you'd think for something like this. Uh, Chris, do, do you think <laughs> the director of, uh, who is it, High, High Tension? Is yeah, it's, this is a very weird choice because he he tends to direct very ultra violent horror films. So maybe he's trying to branch out. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, then again, you know, Gore Verbinski, who directed uh, the Pri- Pirates of the Caribbean films and A Cure for Wellness, also directed Mouse Hunt. So people people have range. You never know. <laughs> okay. He also this year had Eli Roth doing um, the house with the clock in its walls. So who knows? I will link uh, my list of uh, board games that should be movies in the show notes. But let's move on to uh, a bunch of things that Hollywood probably shouldn't be uh, remaking. Let's start first with uh, Clueless. It seems like uh, Hollywood has moved on to Clueless for a uh, remake for, for some reason. Chris, tell us about it. Uh, yeah, so Paramount is exploring a Clueless remake for some reason. Um uh, Girls Trip producer Tracy Oliver is uh, going to produce the film, and one of the writers of Glow, the the very good Netflix series, is writing the film, the script. And uh, there's not a whole lot of info, but we can we can probably safely assume that you know Clueless, which is a very '90s film, is going to be updated for the 21st century, and it will involve Snapchat. Uh, yeah, the Snapchats and the Tinders and all the stuff the kids like these days. So this is a bad idea because Clueless, I don't want to say it's a perfect film, but it, it's a very good film. And the fact that it's a a perfect time capsule of the 90s is what makes the original so special. And to update it to the 21st century just seems like a bad idea. You know, I'd rather they just make a new high school, uh, iconic high school movie for the 21st century. But I guess that takes a lot of effort and they'd rather just remake something. Yeah, we were talking in the Slack. I think Clueless is the movie that kind of defines the 90s in the high school movie genre where, uh, uh, you know, Mean Girls probably defines the 2000s. And we were actually trying to figure out, did we come to a conclusion? What We're now almost nine years into... Uh, to the 2010s. Do we have a high school movie that's the defining high school movie of this generation? 
The closest thing I can think of is Easy A, which is a fine movie, but not iconic in the way that Clueless or Mean Girls were. And it's kind of unfortunate. I feel like a lot of the teens have moved to TV, so maybe that's yeah, why. I was talking to some uh, one of my friends, Annette, last night, and she said, it, it, without a doubt, the TV show Pretty Little Liars is <laughs> it, is what uh, defines this generation. And, um, so, really? Yeah. I I watched a few episodes of that, and it was fun, kind of soapy trash, but that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I I love Clueless. Clueless is such a, a classic movie. I, I I mean, it's not the greatest movie of all time, but I think, honestly, the only flaws in that movie from a perspective of today is the technology is kind of out of date. And uh, that's the only thing I think that they could possibly – but I, I feel Update. like that's like that's the charm of that movie. Yeah, that's that why it's so have, endearing. Yeah, they have big flip phones, and yeah. you know, I, I like that that it's it's dated. I mean, you know, and it's funny because it was a satire too at the time of how media uh, crazy these young teens were, and the fo- the scene where they where she where Cher and Dion like are talking to, her, to each other on the phone in the hallway <laughs> was supposed to be satirical and not something that was very common, but now. It's, it was actually quite prophetic. It's a great it's a great movie. Yeah, I'm just trying to think if there's any interesting way to turn this. Oh, maybe it clueless starring guys. I, I that doesn't make any sense. Why? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know, uh, Ben. The only thing I can think is if they make it like a period piece, and they make you know how like in the early 2000s we had like a, a rash of movies that were set in the 80s and it was like look at how crazy the 80s were and maybe they're going to do that but that would be even more pointless because the original movie is just that but that's the only thing i can think of and the movie itself is an adaptation of emma too it's like the modern adaptation of emma by jane austen so making it a period piece would feel like you know the snake eating its own tail in a way that would be very <laughs> odd yeah for sure which is not something that hollywood hasn't done before uh ben do you have any thoughts on this um, no, I, I was just going through a list of movies from the 2010s that were set in high school, and there really isn't anything that jumps out at me as, like, even approaching the level of the films that you guys have, have mentioned. So, I don't know, I, I feel like Hollywood's sort of um, fallen off in that category a little bit, and maybe that has to do with sort of like what we were talking about with the baseball films not too long ago on the podcast, like the idea of these movies being so specific to American culture that maybe they don't sell as well overseas. So maybe they're more difficult to make, you know, these days in the, the sort of uh, international, um, the, the, the international heavy, uh, you, you have to factor that in these days to getting a project made. So I don't know, maybe that's the culprit here. Do you think that there's a possibility that we're still in the 2010s? So we just can't see, you know, the tree for the far, you know, like that we, we, we can't see it or, is there also the possibility that uh, even our young one, HT, uh, <laughs> is not young Hello, enough to, young to, to be on the uh, the touch, uh, you know, the, the feeling. On the pulse the of pulse. the teenage yeah. kingdom? I mean, I'm, I, I'm not, I don't think. <laughs> I was talking to my teen cousin earlier and I was learning all these new terms about Snapchat that I never knew. I'm, I'm very out of out of touch with that generation i feel like but every every generation is kind of gets old and miserly when it comes to the next coming generation i mean it does take time i feel like you know mean girls wasn't as iconic as it it's considered now and you know that came out in what 2000 
I don't even four, know. I think. Three yeah. So yeah. I, it, it might take time. I mean, you know, maybe there is stuff now that years from now people are going to be like, that's a classic, but we don't realize it yet. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, and if anybody out there has an answer to our question that, uh, you know, is a really good answer, send it to Peter at slash dot com and uh, maybe we'll read it in a future episode. But let's move on to another thing that Hollywood is remaking that I don't think HT is too happy about. And that is uh, My Hero Academia. Uh, HT, I've heard you talk about this in the past. Uh, tell us about this. So Legendary Pictures has begun developing a My Hero Academia live action movie based on the wildly popular manga and anime series, which is currently, I think, taken the world by storm and has become one of the most popular anime series uh, today. And it's kind of it's a really interesting series in that it's like the Japanese take on Marvel and DC superheroes. It's uh, it's. All of these elements of Marvel superheroes, DC superheroes, thrown into a blender with like shonen manga, and it's hilarious and so fun. Kind of like X Men meets Harry Potter in a way, because it follows these protagonists in an elite school that trains them to become the next generation of superheroes. So, um, Legendary Pictures is starting to develop a live action movie based on this. There is no director or writer attached yet. But uh, this is kind of controversial because, to be honest, this movie has already been made in Hollywood, and that is the 2005 American superhero comedy Sky High, which is an entertaining movie. I can't in good confidence say that it's a good movie, but it was basically the same template as My Hero, Hero Academia, and it has the same sort of zippy, uh, hyperkinetic vibe as My Hero Academia. And Hollywood as well, has not really had a great track record with anime adaptations, even but, if they But these are the same template. people that are adapting the Pokemon uh, Detective <laughs> Pikachu movie. I mean, you have no faith in them? Uh, uh, I mean, they're also... I will give them the benefit of the doubt in some cases because they were behind Pacific Rim franchise, which is kind of the best embodiment of anime brought to um, live action life. But I think that's mostly thanks to Guillermo del Toro and his love for the um, the, fran- the genre. So it's something that I don't really know if it'll do well. I don't know what the Detective Pikachu movie will look like. It just sounds weirder and weirder to me the more I, I learn about it. So we'll see. So you being a big fan of this anime, it will you'd be excited to watch a live action Hollywood adaptation of it? Listen, I don't know how many years ago this was, but there is that Dragon Ball Z live action adaptation in which they cast a completely white cast with like one or two Asian characters as the tokens. And it was horrible. And it had just, it was a, an embarrassment for for anime adaptations and i kind of get the sinking feeling that my hero academia will be the same i think that anime in a lot of senses isn't really um suited to being adapted to live action especially my hero academia which um really falls into a lot of the anime specific tropes that you see in series like naruto or bleach um which you know bleach actually ended up doing well as a live action one but it just don't i don't know if it'll make the transition to live screen uh, to the live action screen well we'll i will see i mean you do make a good point like animation as a medium the reason why they pick 
you know, these animes or even like Disney picks what they choose to develop, you know, into stories for their animated films. They're basing it based on that medium, if they could actually use that medium to its fullest. And how, and usually, you know, I mean, we've seen with so, so, some of these uh, anime animation to in anime ad- adaptations to live action that it doesn't translate uh well maybe it is better a product of that that medium mm-hmm. um but uh, let, let's move on to a bunch of things that hollywood is canceling uh because that seems to be what's happening today uh first off let's talk about uh the boba fett movie ben tell us about it Yes. So last night, uh, Kathleen Kennedy, the president of Lucasfilm, attended a special award season screening of Black Panther. And while she was there, a journalist went up to her and asked about a status update about the Boba Fett movie. And apparently Kathleen Kennedy said that the movie is 100 percent dead and they are 100 percent focusing on The Mandalorian, which is the new um, TV series that Jon Favreau is working on for Disney Play, which is Disney's upcoming streaming service. So that basically... Uh, you know, slams the the coffin (laughs) shut on a Boba Fett movie. We've been talking about this movie since I think early 2013, like pretty soon after Disney bought Lucasfilm and started developing ideas for what Star Wars stories they wanted to tell. This movie has gone through a a bunch of ups and downs, even though Disney never officially technically (laughs) announced it as like a real thing. Um, But we've heard so many reports over the years about people who might be in it or people who might be directing it. And most recently, James Mangold, the uh, director of Logan, was in talks to write and direct it. And now it sounds like that's not going to be happening, I mean, at least anytime soon. It's it's possible, of course, that after The Mandalorian is done, they could, you know, go back to the well and give Boba Fett a, a movie at that point. But that seems like it's probably years away at this, you know, at this stage. Or they could maybe slot Boba Fett into another movie. But it seems like... As of right now, if this uh, report is accurate, Kathleen Kennedy is not interested in making a Boba Fett movie right this second. Or, as I speculated, he could show up in The Mandalorian. But um, I'm actually more su- I'm not surprised that the Boba Fett movie is 100% dead. I'm more surprised that someone like Kathleen Kennedy would actually confirm to someone that it's 100% dead. Uh, Because usually, you know, when you ask executive of anything, like they try to keep hope alive, even when like, you know, a project has been completely shelved. They're like, oh yeah, it could happen someday. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But uh, let's move on to Arrested Development, uh, which could be ending on Netflix. Chris, you wrote a story for this. Uh, yeah, D- uh, David Cross, who who plays Tobias on Arrested Development, um, appeared on the the Late Night with Seth Ma- Seth Meyers podcast, which I guess is a thing, and said uh, after the second half of season five airs, which will probably be at the beginning of next year, uh, it's it's probably unlikely the show will return. He didn't really give specifics. He just said, uh, you know, there's a variety of reasons why it probably won't happen. And, you know, you can draw your own conclusions there. Uh, obviously, Jeffrey Tambor is on the show has become a bit toxic after um, sexual uh, harassment allegations from uh, Transparent. And also, when when the cast of Arrested Development was doing a press tour for uh, the first half of season five, which debuted on Netflix this year, it went really, really badly where... 
they did an interview in the New York Times and every male in the cast defended Jeffrey Tambor's onset antics for Arrest Development and it looked really bad and they all had to apologize later. So, and, uh, you know, the biggest reason is the show's just not good anymore. You know, those first three seasons on Fox were great, but it seems like almost everyone agrees that ever since Netflix saved the series, it just hasn't been what it originally was. The cast is too busy to really shoot together, so... They always have to shoot around them and it just it just does not work as well. So it seems very likely that after the second half of season five airs, that that'll be it for Arrested Development. Is anyone here sad that this could be coming to an end? No, (laughs) (laughs) no, I didn't even watch the fifth season because I think Chris did an early review of it and was just like, it's not, you know, it lost that magic. So I I watched the fourth season and was very disappointed in that. So I'm just whenever I do rewatches of the series, uh, I just stop after season three and pretend that that's where it actually ends. (laughs) Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I was very disappointed after season four and just kind of lost interest. In, it kind of tainted the show for me in a way. I was I had an appreciation for the series as like a, another time capsule of the when it came out, and it felt like it was just dragging longer than it should have been. Okay, let's move on to a more shocking cancellation, and this is for American Vandal, which is being canceled by Netflix, uh, but it could find life elsewhere. Uh, somehow, some somewhere, someone can Netflix this Netflix show. Uh, <laughs> HT, tell us about it. Netflix has committed a true crime here. Uh, <laughs> the, seri- the streaming giant has uh, canceled American Vandal after two seasons. In a statement uh, announcing the cancellation, it said, American Vandal will not return for a third season. We're very grateful to the creators, writers, cast, and crew for bringing their innovative comedy to Netflix, etc., but according to sources uh, telling Variety um, that other platforms might be looking to save uh, American Vandal. It, it, Variety didn't name what platforms this would be, but it's possible that, like Peter said, another uh, platform, maybe Hulu, Amazon Prime, or even Funny or Die, which helped produce the, um, the series, could Netflix this Netflix series. Yeah, it, it's kind of crazy that the – what what is the reason that they're – canceling this well there's no um official reason but it's possible um according to this variety story that um because american vandal was produced by an outside studio this could have led to its cancellation uh, as netflix is looking to uh produce pro- more projects in-house for control of the global rights of those titles and um it's maybe it's despite the critical claim and the word of mouth it we don't know a Netflix's statistics, so it might not have done as well as their other series. It's interesting because I hear so much buzz about this show. Like, it's if okay. I were to like judge like how many mentions of a show is on my Twitter feed, I would think that this is like one of the most watched Netflix shows. But obviously, that's a bubble. And uh, I have been putting off watching the show, and I listened to, uh, to the, sla- the Slash Filmcast last week, and Jeff Kanata had just started diving in. Uh, he diving in late, and it was his reaction to the show that got me to want to watch the show, and now I'm not sure if I should because it's canceled. Peter, it's so good. I mean, the, the seasons are actually nice, well-contained stories yeah. because it's... 
it's kind of almost like an anthology series in that it it follows the two same like high school documentarians, but they investigate a different crime every season. The first being who drew the dicks, the second being who was the turd burglar. And <laughs> it all sounds very silly, but it's a great show. I can't believe that it took Jeff Kanata on Slash Film Cats to talk to get you to convince you to see it when we've been raving about it for I know. I have yeah, years. Seriously, Peter, I am I am frankly <laughs> offended at this. <laughs> I've been on the well, you know what it is also I've been on the edge for so long because of you guys and I think it's also I've we've I've reached the point where I've finished watching all the stuff I wanted to watch so I don't have anything to watch so yeah I've been like kind of looking for something new to watch uh Ben are you upset that they're canceling this yeah, I think so. I mean, it, you know, it, it's one of those shows that is so good in concept and execution that I I hesitate. I, you know, I, I certainly don't want it to go on for seven or eight seasons or anything like that, because I feel like there's no way they can sustain the quality that they've established up to that point or up to this point. But um, I, I sure I would have loved to seen, you know, maybe one or two more seasons just to uh, round it out and see sort of how how much further they could stretch this while while keeping that quality level really high up. I mean, what what do you think ht how, how if if another company were to pick this up how many seasons do you think american vandal should have um i mean because of the premise it could go on forever but yeah, it could I be like college think... vandal or they could go yeah. like overseas uh, to like london for like university or something and oh, be, be like london vandal i don't know yeah uh, an american vandal in london <laughs> yes awesome <laughs> i got the title already they well, need um... to do it just for that <laughs> Yeah. But uh, Ben, I kind of agree with you because it's so clever and it's so incisive and strangely perceptive about the high school experience that I want the quality to stay as high as it is. I would wish for maybe like at least five seasons. I just want this show to stay in my life because it provides me so much joy. And it's just it. I know people like maybe would shy away from it because they don't enjoy high school uh, comedies, but it is it is that move that show that gets into um, the high school sort of society and pressures more so than like even some of other Netflix's other dramas. Mm-hmm. Chris, are, are you upset? I'm all right. I mean, I, I watched the first season. I liked it. I have not gotten around to the second season yet, so I'm not devastated, but I, I you know, I've heard nothing but good things about it. So it is kind of disappointing, but I, I guess we'll see what happens. Okay. Let's talk about something that has upset you. And that is the Filmstruck is shutting down next month. Uh, tell, tell us why. It just, uh, yeah, I'm very upset about this. Um, Filmstruck, uh, if you don't know, and there's a good chance you don't because it doesn't have enough subscribers, is a really great film uh, streaming service. I think it's actually the best around. Um, it streams more obscure titles, more classic movies. It's the home of the Criterion Collection uh, streaming and it just does not have enough enough subscribers so warner media who owns it is is shutting it down next month and uh that sucks it, it's um i was hoping it would stay around longer but it's just too much of a niche service i guess and that's really all there is to it they're shutting down um by the end of november so if you have film struck enjoy it now while you can because it'll be gone very soon so, so do you think that the program that programming that's offered on Filmstruck was just too obscure for general audiences? I don't know. Maybe just not enough people know about it. I don't really know. 
you know, how people approach their streaming services these days. You know, everyone has Netflix, I think, but I don't know if people realize how much is out there. And at the same time, I don't know if people can afford multiple streaming services. I mean, I have multiple services and I'm not exactly well to do in, in the financial department. So, you know, I, I just don't know if people can really afford it. I don't know how many people know about Filmstruck and yeah, there's, this, this is a very obscure service in the sense that it doesn't offer blockbusters. It doesn't offer uh, you know, original programming like Netflix does. It, it's classic movies, and I don't know what the market is for that. I wish the market was better for it, but it, it, it just seems like maybe only like hardcore cinephiles would be drawn to this, and I don't know how many there are out there. And we, and we know Warner Brothers is going to be launching their own streaming service. Do you think that these offerings might be lumped into that? Uh, it would be really stupid if it weren't because, you know, they, they have the rights to them. They might, I'm hoping it'll happen. But that service isn't supposed to launch till the end of 2019. So I don't know why. I wish they had somehow managed to keep this going until then. But I guess they just don't have the money. I don't know. I mean, they have enough money for multiple Joker films, but not this. <laughs> I do want to point out that this is the second sort of niche streaming service that Warner Media has suddenly shut down in the past month. Uh, they recently uh, shuttered the popular K-drama uh, streaming service, Drama Fever, which started off as like an independent sort of uh, fan-run streaming service and then eventually got bought by bigger companies and went to Warner Media. And that was a really controversial uh kind of a big thing that happened in like the k-drama community because it shuttered without notice it just the site was suddenly not there one day and um it drama fever also has like several shows that it exclusively acquired and was uh showing exclusively to u.s audiences so these subscribers were left without um like knowledge of where the where they could see finish watching their shows and they were refunded, but it's a kind of, it seems kind of like it's Warner media preparing for their own streaming service and then just shutting down all their more niche ones. But it's kind of, it's, it's a little bit uh, unfortunate that that's the case because there are, I feel like they're almost alienating potential subscribers by uh, shutting down these uh, services so early. Yeah. And it's also weird because I feel like the promise of the new media was that we would get channels and content that is more niche and more like, you know, you could find your like subset of subset corner that has like some kind of, you know, that just that content. Um, but it seems like none of that is, is working. Maybe it, maybe it just doesn't work in the big sense for like big studios. Maybe it has to, you know, maybe, you know, some small company has to come out and actually, like, you know, license this content. But I guess they sold, you know, the, the service you, you were talking about, HD, sold to, eventually sold to Warner. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure how, how that's going to work. But um, let, let's talk a little bit about streaming services uh, because there's this new article out there talking about how they're actually destroying Hollywood's middle class. Ben, you kind of did a write-up for this on SlashFilm.com, uh, explain why are streaming services destroying Hollywood's middle class? 
Yeah, so Fast Company published this really, really great article that really explores um, the shifting entertainment landscape and how the middle class of Hollywood, a lot of the people whose names you don't know, actors whose names you don't know, and writers and and people that um, are not, you know, people like Ryan Murphy or Shonda Rhimes or like these big A-list kinds of uh, heavy hitters are the ones that are really um, suffering in this changing industry. And the streaming wars are a big part of the reason why. So Part of it comes from the fact that traditional seasons of television used to be, you know, 22 or 24 episodes long. But a lot of the streaming sites have sliced the episode count down to eight or 10 or 13 episodes or something like that. So these mid-level writers aren't working on a show for as long as they used to when they get hired onto a job. So, like I said, those those big name people who have these huge producing deals are fine. But the people who are sort of in the trenches doing the actual work of writing the episodes are now being forced to fill the gaps by maybe trying to find another job in the same year, whereas previously they could have just worked on one TV show a year and had enough to you know, support themselves and their families. But now with the increase in all these streaming services, you know, Amazon, Hulu, CBS, All Access, Facebook Watch, Apple, all this stuff, there are more shows and more writing jobs out there, but there are also... Um, they're way more competitive, those jobs, because all of these people are now working on shortened seasons and they're all now competing to try to supplement their income. And the actor, it's not just writers, actors are feeling the effects of this as well. So um, the payment structure has changed a lot too. Residuals are, uh, which is basically like uh, actors and writers getting paid for their work once uh, they get uh, aired on reruns and stuff like that. Um, those have basically gone away because all these streaming sites have are, are constantly producing new, fresh content all the time. The TV networks, the traditional places that used to run reruns all the time, are now airing less reruns because they are also trying to keep up with this constant race that's happening. It's like an arms race in the entertainment industry. And um, actors are, are sort of suffering in the process. You know, again, people who are sort of these mid-level actors who are not number one on the call sheet. It's not the, the person who is leading the, the TV show, but it's the people who are sort of the supporting players. The uh, Fast Company piece has this really great example, and they use Allison Becker as an example. She's an actress who was on Parks and Recreation. Uh, she just got a job not too long ago on a new Netflix show where she was the fifth person on the call sheet. So like the she's not quite a series regular, even though she would have been in uh, a traditional network TV show. But Netflix, according to her, has just basically kept her in a guest star role instead of making her a series regular. And that changes the payment scale. And she, the example she uses is that she says, if I'd been number five on an NBC show, I'd be making $30,000 a week, but I was making $980 a week at Netflix. By the time you pay out taxes, your manager, agent, and lawyer, I was walking away with like $200. So that's a pretty drastic shift. Um, That's less money than someone that makes like driving Uber los angeles yeah yeah exactly so that this is this is the uh and i encourage every anybody who's interested in the industry to you know go to our article in the show notes and then link we link to the fast company piece and you can read the whole thing there's there's a bunch of really good insights there that they that we didn't really have time to get into in our piece but um yeah it's a really good look at the kind of thing that we don't really talk about that much like the actual impact on real people that these uh changing uh landscapes um have so yeah it's kind of a a weird thing 
It's very interesting. And you know what? We've gotten through all these stories, a record amount of stories, uh, in a quick time that we're going to actually add on one more story here. And that is uh, about the Jinx, which is a uh, show that uh, Ben is uh, really enthusiastic about. Uh, you did this article kind of uh, updating us on what is happening in the real life consequences of that show. Tell us about it. Yeah, so there's a show on HBO called The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst that aired in 2015, and it made headlines because of the show's really extraordinary ending, which I think is honestly like one of the most astounding moments in TV history. It is a tremendous show, and I would really recommend like people pausing this episode going to watch the entirety of the jinx maybe check it out this weekend or something and then come back and listen to the rest of this because i'm going to spoil the real life events of what happens at the end of this documentary but uh it is a it's a series that followed this guy named robert durst who is a wealthy real estate heir in new york city and uh he basically uh, sort of like kind of admitted to a bunch of murders at the end of the show and it's unclear whether or not that actual um the clip from that show will be uh, used as evidence in a murder trial that he is currently um, embroiled in. But there is a new development in this case because the prosecution have asked the judge who is handling the Robert Durst trial to allow them to use the DVD commentary track for a movie called All Good Things as evidence. And All Good Things is a 2010 movie directed by Andrew Jarecki, who's the same guy who directed The Jinx. And so he made All Good Things in 2010. Uh, Ryan Gosling plays a character that is heavily inspired by Robert Durst. And it, the movie sort of tells Durst's story uh, and largely focuses on the disappearance of his wife, Kathleen. And this actually happened in 1982. Robert Durst's wife disappeared and nobody knows what happened to her. But the theory is that he killed her and hid the body somewhere. And uh, the real Robert Durst actually watched this movie, All Good Things, and reached out to the director and said, hey, I really liked what you did with this film and agreed to meet up with him for an interview. And they ended up recording a commentary track for the DVD release and then did a bunch of in-person interviews that would later be become the jinx. So the uh, prosecution um, wants to use the DVD commentary track for All Good Things as evidence in this court case because they say that while Robert Durst was sitting there recording the commentary track and watching Ryan Gosling commit these crimes, they said, quote, Durst's comments and at times his silence while viewing all good things constitute a tacit admission of guilt. They said, after reading the script and watching this movie, the defendant did not sue the production company for slander, nor did he object to how the movie portrayed him. And later on, they said something about like, uh, his failure to dispute any of the other damning allegations from the rest of the movie manifests his belief in the movie's truth. It strains all credibility to suggest that a person being depicted as a serial killer would not have stood up and proclaimed the falsity of such allegations. So they're trying to convince the judge to uh, to <laughs> to use this DVD commentary in a court of law, which I've never heard of before. Um, and yeah, I just thought that entire thing was uh, it, it's it's very much in keeping with the totally insane tone of these real life events set by uh the jinx and, and depicted in the jinx um I, I, what, do you, what do you guys think about this peter should the dvd commentary track be allowed to be used in this way well i mean <laughs> i don't think that someone 
it's tough, right? Because it's like, tough because I mean that's like saying like, oh, we're gonna use OJ's uh, "If I Did It" book in his hearings. On I don't know. It's it's his is his participation in this commentary acknowledgement of anything. I don't know. I I feel like they could use comments he says in the the commentary track to prove things but his participation in it and not suing the movie seems kind of like fit to me yeah I, i'm kind of right there with you chris what do you think i know you've, you've seen the show uh yeah the like I, I agree with peter in that comments should matter but it's weird to be like Ah, the fact that he didn't say anything at all proves he's guilty. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I will say I think Robert Durst is guilty. It's it's pretty clear that he probably uh, did commit these crimes, but everyone deserves a uh, a fair hearing in, in the eyes of the law. So it, it's a little weird to use this. Ben, I know you in our Slack channel the other day were kind of uh, half confessing your love for this this show – but on the other hand, feeling guilty. Yeah, it's the same thing that happens um, with a lot of true crime stuff, honestly. And it's it's part of the reason why I like um, American Vandal so much is because it's all fictional and I don't have to feel that sense of guilt. But um, but yeah, the jinx for me was one of the, the big things. It, it came out right around the same time as Serial. And that was like for a lot of people what launched uh, this, I guess, current nationwide obsession that we have with true crime genre and making a murderer too came out right around that same time the first season so i i was completely enthralled by the jinx it, it was only i think six episodes or something and i it was like one of my favorite things that i watched on tv that year i did this huge deep dive into reading all of this real life stuff about robert durst and and the trials and stuff that didn't make the show but these crazy antics that he was into and and participated in over the years but like the guilt part comes in that all of this has been packaged into a piece of entertainment for my enjoyment but there are very real consequences that come along with that like people were murdered people are actually dead because of this uh or because of this guy's actions allegedly um and so it, it just had me, yeah, a little bit conflicted. Like I, you know, I, I look back really fondly on watching the Jinx and, and being so sucked into that story and doing all this research afterwards. But at the same time, I feel kind of bad about it because real people lost their lives in the process. I mean, this is even if you've never seen the Jinx and don't know anything about the case, I, I think that kind of thing can apply to the true crime genre in a more broad sense. Um, what do you guys think about that? Do you feel similarly? But I don't think you're enjoying the murder. You're not enjoying that aspect. Of it. You're enjoying the search for justice, right? Yeah, that's true. And like the just the, you know, the whirlwind of it all, like the the um, like the incredible um, turns that that come in this case, like the fact that this happened in real life. And there are so many things in the show that happen where you're just like your jaw is on the floor because you can't believe that this actually happened in real life. So, um, yeah, I think it was just it's it's an incredibly um, effective piece of storytelling and, and like one of the best documentary kind of things that I've ever seen. Uh, but yeah, you and know, I know just... HT and I have both not seen this, and you chastised us. You actually almost didn't want to do the story on the podcast 
because uh, you wanted us to see it the weekend. So we could do and I, I still, I still do because I there are so many things that I didn't say in my just you know uh, verbal recap of what's going on that are these moments that I, I that are sitting there preserved in amber, just waiting for you guys to to you know pr- yeah. to discover. Um, so I, I can't wait. I, I really hope you take the time <laughs> sometime to to check out the show because it's like one of the most addicting things I've ever seen. And and I hope that goes for the yeah. listeners out there who may not have seen it too. But um, I don't know. Does, has anybody ever had that experience with uh, with true crime stuff? I think I see what you mean, Ben. I think I kind of had that experience watching um, three, three Identical Strangers this past uh, summer in which um, one of the person's uh, real like, mental illness was used essentially as a third act twist. And it's it's kind of this strange um, line that we walk with packaging these real life stories and real consequences as entertainment. And I think that, yeah, there's something to be, to be said about that, but um, it's probably, it's a comp, it's a complex issue to unpack that we have to like look inward to ourselves too, to see like, to kind of grapple with how we feel about this as entertainment versus this as like truth telling or justice or, seeking justice in that kind of way chris how yeah, about you just like is it worth it like chris do you think it's worth it for stuff like this uh, it's a real uh, slippery slope like when i was growing up i was really obsessed with serial killers this will probably surprise no one and um <laughs> i had this like I had this book. It was called like the A to Z Encyclopedia of Serial Killers. And, you know, I, I would pour oh, over Of course that. you had that book. <laughs> yes, of course I had that book. And, you know, uh, it's it's very – I don't know why people are drawn to that. I mean, true crime is such a popular genre. And there's like entire cha- – like there's a channel called Investigation Discovery. And all they play – it's just true crime shows, you know, these reenactment shows where people are being brutally murdered and people break into houses and, uh, you know, people love that stuff. And I, I don't know why it is. I wish I had an answer, you know, and, you know, all I can say is I know myself. I know that I'm not a serial killer. I know that I don't <laughs> enjoy people suffering. So I'm able to compartmentalize that in the sense that, like, I know I'm not deriving enjoyment from the act i'm more deriving enjoyment from reading about someone telling me about the act and i guess Mm -hmm. that's like the wall i put between myself and the action yeah i know that makes sense i know uh my girlfriend ketra she one of her favorite podcasts she listens to is this podcast called my favorite murderer i love that podcast you love that podcast and she like binged through that like over the last like couple uh months and like even the the name I have not I've only listened to it while she's been listening to it, but even the name of that kind of a little bit rubs me the wrong way because it's like oh my favorite you know you have a favorite murder like this is someone that actually got killed, but uh, I don't know as a viewer I don't really I really haven't like felt that kind of um, conflict that you have felt. Ben, I, I will say, and I did mention, you know, Making a Murderer Season 2, the first episode, they kind of uh, t- talked to some of, like, uh, Teresa Halbach, uh, the, the victim of of that uh, murder that is the subject of Making a Murderer Season 1. They talked to some of her, like, family and friends and kind of give you a glimpse into uh, how kind of that 
first docuseries affected them. And that was the first time I was like, oh, I never even thought about how something like this affects, you know, the the family and friends of the people involved. Uh, so that was kind of interesting. But yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't think there's an actually a fix here. It's just like yeah. like you guys have said, you know, it's just something like I think she was saying you have to look inside yourself. It's just something it's worth thinking about. Um, and it's I don't I'm not like trying to change anybody's viewing habits. I'm still going to watch true crime stuff when something comes along that I'm interested in. It's just, um, you know, something that uh, that I think is worth considering when you are, are thinking about the show as a whole. <laughs> For sure. Um well, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. We have officially gone over, so we're not going to do all our goodbyes. But uh, you can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to Peter at SlashHome.com. And please go to our iTunes page, uh, rate and read this podcast, tell your friends, spread the word. And we'll see you on Monday.